Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. And you, I'm sure you think Christmas, you think Ecclesiastes, right? That's what, okay, I hope so. So we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 11, starting in verse 7 this morning. Before, as you're turning there, two things I, for, I failed to mention in the announcements that I wanted to say. One is, um, after the service, uh, make sure you give us a big thank you to Dave and Ariel, because once again, they are filling in on very short notice. So they found out they were leading yesterday. So they have, they've worked very hard to serve us in that way today, and I'm very appreciative of them. So make sure they know that you appreciate them as well. The second is something, something monumental happened this week. I'm surprised there wasn't broader press coverage. It wasn't all over your news feeds, but our very own Phil Owen graduated from seminary this Friday. So Pastor Ben and I got the pleasure to go down to Louisville on Friday to witness that, and it was a joyful occasion, and we are proud of Phil, and we are grateful for what God has done in him and what he's prepared him now to do. So now he's a master of divinity. So if you have any questions, Phil is the master. All right, with that aside, let us turn our focus to God's word in Ecclesiastes, starting in chapter 11, verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Well, I used to have a neighbor named Joyce. Joyce was a woman in her 90s whose husband died shortly after Emily and I moved in. And we tried to get to know her even as she developed dementia. Joyce had lots of quirks that were unrelated to dementia. But she also had things that she would do as her dementia worsened over the years. Where she would often forget things. She would tell the same stories time and time again. But one of the things that our family loved was Joyce's frequent evening phone calls. On more than one occasion, Emily's phone would ring and without any small talk or chit-chat, Joyce in her somewhat gruff way would cut right to the chase and say, Honey, go look out your window. And so we'd go look out our westward-facing windows and there would be the most brilliant and beautiful sunset. And each time this happened, it just, there was something meaningful about pausing with this woman whose physical and mental abilities were rapidly fading to savor and appreciate the fading of the day's last light. And as we did that, it made me realize that there's, there's a sharp contrast, a divergence in how we view each of those fadings. See, with the sun, we all know that there's a beauty with the sun as it first makes its appearance. Sunrise, oh, beautiful. And then for most of the day, it shines in full strength. Then as the day winds down, the sun's light grows weaker and weaker and weaker. And yet right before the day is done when, is when the sun shines most beautifully. While people may comment throughout the day on, whoo, that sun is hot, or wow, that's a bright one today, they stop what they're doing to call their neighbor only to admire the beauty of the setting sun. But when it comes to our own fading and old age, we tend to think very differently. Rather than facing the sunset of life to behold its beauty, we tend to turn away and pretend that we're still in the morning or at least the mid-afternoon of our lives. As a culture, we hate the idea of old age. Like it's, we're, we're allergic to the idea of it. Or at least the idea that we could ever be described that way. Saying someone is old is seen as an insult. I actually read whole articles about addressing what is the proper way to address those of a certain age. You would not believe the number of things that you're not supposed to say. And why is that? Why is it so taboo? Like you could, it, no one thinks twice to say, oh, look at that young guy over there. But you say, hey, look at that old guy over there. It's like, hey, let's be respectful. It's an insult. And why? It's because we have all these negative connotations of what old age brings. We think of health problems, diminished strength and ability, and just the reality of being closer to death. So we fight against the perception of old age with everything we have. In fact, the anti-aging business is a several billion dollar a year industry. We do everything possible to hold on to or recreate the outward appearance of youth. From clothes, to diets, to cosmetics, to dyeing our hair, to plastic surgery. We make every effort to look and feel younger. We are like children 
playing outside in the summer who dread the sunset because it means that night is coming when our day is done and we have to go to sleep. And yet in the Bible, old age is seen so differently. In the Bible, old age is considered a blessing and a gift of God. Proverbs 16 says, gray hair is a crown of glory. Old age is something honored and esteemed, not dreaded or hidden from. Now, the text today isn't just about old age. In fact, in many ways, it's really about youth. But it's about how we live when we're in the sunlight of youth because of the reality that one day the sun will begin to set. And we'll all experience old age if the Lord keeps us that long. Now, I know some of you are sitting in the pew and you're racking your brain trying to figure out, which one am I? Am I, am I, am I, is he talking about me? Am I old? I don't feel old. And in fact, I came across a great quote this week that I think will help us all. Here's what the quote said. Inside every old person is a young person wondering what happened. Can't you identify with that? As we get older, there's this growing disconnect between our real age and how we think of ourselves. I still think of myself often like I'm in my early 20s. I think, yes, I have the energy. I could do that, or physically I could do that. But then my body is quick to remind me, no, you're actually in your 40s. We don't feel like we're old enough to be at whatever stage of life we're at. Like, it feels weird. Like, really? You would trust me with this kind of responsibility? We don't feel like we're old enough to have a job like this or to have a house like we do. We're not old enough to have kids that age. I'm not old enough to be a grandparent. How am I old enough to be retired? Inside all of us is this young person wondering, what happened? So the question the preacher wants to answer for us this morning is, in light of the realities of old age, how can we live well, however young or old we might be, so that the sunset of our lives is beautiful? How can we be like Joyce and face the fading with joy? Now, I want you to notice also, as we're going through Ecclesiastes, these are the last words the preacher has for us. There's one more sermon after this, but after this it's going to be the narrator. So not the same person, the narrator of the book. He's going to reflect on what the preacher has said. And just like the preacher opened with a poem about the cyclical nature of the world, if you can remember all the way back to chapter 1, he talked about how a generation comes and a generation goes and things don't change. Well, now guess what? Now he closes with a poem to show what that generation coming and going looks like on an individual case basis. So our outline this morning is going to be really simple. He has two calls for us this morning. Rejoice, remember. Any of us can memorize this outline. All right, so rejoice, remember. So that's where we're going today. So let me jump in see what he has to say. He starts with a very simple but needed reminder. Look at verse 7. He says, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. What he's saying here is life is good. 
In the words of that famous prophet Travis Tritt, it's a great day to be alive. I know the sun's still shining when I close my eyes. For those of you who are wondering why people are giggling, that's a country song, not a prophet. We know, and even Travis knows, that seeing the light of the sun means we're still alive. Right? That's what he's saying, is that all throughout the book, we're living life under the sun. So if I see, if I see the sun, I'm alive. And he's saying, hey, that's sweet. He's reminding us that life under the sun, while mysterious, is filled with sweet things. A talk with a good friend, warm cinnamon rolls, family vacations, seeing your bride walk down the aisle to you, snuggling with a child. A roaring fire on a cold day. And you could go on and on and on with the sweet things that life is filled with. And all of those are part of what makes the light sweet. In other words, it's a pleasant thing to be alive. Or picture a movie when someone gets let out of jail or they're freed from captivity in a prison. They step outside and what's the first thing they do, right? They kind of tip their head back and they let the warmth of the sunshine just wash over them. Why? Because they're glad to be alive. Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. He's telling us being alive is a glorious thing. So if being alive is such a good and sweet thing, what should we do? Well, look at verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. So he tells us here, look, however many years God gives you, the preacher is calling you to rejoice in them all. Every one of them. And that's the key part. You say, yeah, yeah you, should, you should rejoice. But he says rejoice in them all. Sometimes we can take life for granted, can't we? It's particularly when we're younger, we're more prone to it. But when we take life for granted, we can fail to enjoy the present because we're so eager to get to that next stage. Yeah, these years are fine, whatever, but I, I wish I could kind of skip these because what I really want is, you know, when you're really young, kind of growing up, you're like, oh man, someday I can't wait till I can drive. That'll be awesome. And then once you drive, you figure out, I just want to get out of high school. I want to go to college or get a job. And then you look forward to getting married. And then you can't wait for kids. And then once the kids come, you're like, oh, I can't wait till the baby stage is over. And then once the kids are growing up, you look forward to being empty nesters. And then you say, oh, once we hit retirement, and we just, we keep wishing our life away, saying like, oh, I'll enjoy life when I get there. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Rejoice in all the years. God gives you because God is the God of every day and the preacher wants us to know there are God-given reasons for you to rejoice in every single year we're given. So do you want to live wisely? Rejoice in all the years you're given. And if there are many years, that means many years for you to experience God's goodness. But the preacher's not naive. He's not just some rose-colored glasses like disconnected from reality. No, he understands. He knows the sun won't be shining every day. He says the days of darkness will be many. He's acknowledging there will be plenty of trials, disappointments, pain, grief, and suffering. 
Life under the sun is a mixture of joys and sorrows, gains and losses, advances and setbacks. That's why he says all that comes is vanity. It's hevel, if you remember that word, meaning it's fleeting. It's out of our control and it's mysterious. And since that's the case, what should we do? Verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. I love this because, did you see how verse 9 starts? There's a command to have joy. Like usually you think about like, oh, people will say like, the Bible's just a bunch of rules. And you're like, yes, and number one is rejoice. This is the drumbeat of Ecclesiastes. In case you haven't caught on by now, like what is the preacher of this book? What's he really driving at as he walks through all the mysterious, hard to understand things about life? What is his recurring theme? Well, let's look together. Go ahead and throw up the first one of those slides. From chapter 2, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. Chapter 3. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Later in chapter 3. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Chapter 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Chapter 8. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And from chapter 9. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. It's staggering when you put them all together. Just It's like a punch in the face. Of like, we get it. Rejoice. What is, there, what is the point? What does he want you to do in life? He says, I want you to eat and drink and enjoy the life I've given you. And this, this is crazy to me because if you notice, he started with advice. First he'd say, ah, here's what I discovered. There's nothing better than to, to be joyful. Then he kind of switched it up saying, you know, here's what I commend. This is, I recommend joy. But now by the end in our passage, 
He's like, I'm not, I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm giving it to you as a command. Rejoice. And here's the thing. It's not optional. Like we think, what? How can joy not be optional? Because God is commanding us to rejoice. And just for a moment, I just want you to stop and think about what that says about who our God is. Our God commands us to be joyful. This should be the best news in the world. He commands us to have joy. In fact, he threatens consequences if we won't be joyful. Did you know that? In Deuteronomy 28 it says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. He's saying, you, you weren't happy. You didn't enjoy what I gave you. You didn't find gladness in who I am. And so if you're not going to find joy in me, well, then you can go serve these others that you look to. Most likely, this is part of the judgment that verse 9 is talking about. We will be held accountable for whether we enjoyed God and his gifts to us. God has given us a world of gifts to enjoy. And it would be an offense against him to not enjoy them. Or to try to enjoy them in the wrong way. Think about it this way. Christmas is coming up, right? Parents, how would you feel if you gave your child a pile of presents and on Christmas morning they open them and then just let them sit there, still in the box, untouched, and instead went to try to find something else to play with? You'd be like, no, no I, I gave you that. Like, I, why did I give that to you? I wanted you to enjoy it. That's the whole reason I provided it and I gave it to you. And so there's actually an affront to your love for them because they're ignoring your love towards them. They're saying, ah, thanks, but no thanks. I don't need that. Don't want that. Or what if you gave them, let's say, a, a bike. You give them a bike, and instead of seeing little Johnny out there pedaling around, just bringing a smile to your face, little Johnny puts the bike in his room and says, this is a great clothes hanger, Mom and Dad. Look, my shirt fits on this, and uh, my shorts can fit on that handlebar. Thanks for the clothes hanger. You're like, nope. That's, you're missing it. That's, that's not what I made it for. That's not what I gave it to you for. You gave them gifts because you want them to rejoice in them and enjoy them. And you want them to enjoy them the way they were meant to be enjoyed. God is no different. He gave us a world filled with food and drink and work and sex and art and sports, and marriage, and friendship, and rest, and so much more. And he will hold us accountable for how and whether we enjoyed them as good gifts of a loving God, or we left them sit under the tree and tried to find our own ways of joy apart from him. Now the reality is, all of us have failed to enjoy God and his gifts the way we ought to, right? We've all been just like Adam and Eve who had a world of very good to enjoy, and instead of just enjoying the world of very good that God made for them, they instead believed the lie that, I think God's holding something back. This is great and all, but what, what about that? 
So rather than enjoying their gifts God gave, they looked for joy apart from him by doing what he commanded them not to. That's how sin entered the world, and that's how sin still looks today. It's us looking for joy apart from God and his gifts. And just like verse 9 says, it's still true today that for all these things, God will bring us into judgment. We will answer for how we've responded to God's gifts and his person. The good news of the gospel is that God sent his son to redeem us from our sin of joylessness. He took on flesh to ransom us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to that sin and live to righteousness. Jesus always obeyed. He always did what he was supposed to. In fact, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But this wasn't merely a dutiful, slog it out kind of obedience. When he obeyed, it was for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. So our Jesus not only always obeyed, he always enjoyed And because he did, when we place our trust in Jesus and find our joy in him, we have forgiveness and new life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We've been adopted as children of God. Therefore, as children, let's receive the good gifts of our Father with joy and gratitude. Even the little seemingly insignificant everyday gifts. I'm not talking about just the new job or the getting married or whatever it is. I'm talking about things like, man, this is a cup of coffee. This is a good gift. Or this is a warm sweater. Or I'm glad I got to talk to that person after church today. Because as one author said, when we are not grateful for the little things, it is only a very short step to no longer being grateful for anything. When we do not enjoy and savor and love and laugh and delight in the little things, then we are heading toward losing our delight in anything. So rejoice and let your heart cheer you. This is the word for the preacher of the preacher to us this morning. He then unpacks another part of rejoicing in verse 10. Look there. He says, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. So here he wants us to see that part of this rejoicing that we're called to do involves removing any hindrances to joy that we can. When it talks about vexation here, one of the best definitions I found was it's talking about a problem that causes anxiety or anger Or grief. So when you think about when he says remove vexation from your heart, think about in your own life. What are those things? What are the problems that cause anxiety or anger or grief? What do you worry about? Or get all worked up about? Or become discouraged about? Whatever those things are for you, the preacher says remove them from your heart. Now, you may not be able to remove them from your life, but you don't have to let them dwell in your heart and control what you think 
and what you feel. Instead, we can cast all our burdens now on him because he cares for us. We cannot be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So as you think this morning about what fills your heart, what fills your thoughts, I want you to ask this diagnostic question. When you think about, should that stay in my heart or should that go? One simple question. Does this kindle my joy in God or does this douse it? And the image I want you to have is of like a little campfire. So is this, is this another piece of dry wood I'm putting on that's going to make it burn brighter and hotter, my love of God? Or is this like a cup of water I'm throwing on? This is going to go... And it may be different for each of us. That's why the thing is, there's, you have to do the hard work of searching your own heart and saying, when I scroll on this social media site, when I watch the news, when I talk to this person, when I listen to that music, when I go to that place, when I participate in that hobby... Whatever the thing is, you know, does this stoke my love of God? Does doing this contribute? Say, I'm so glad God made this and made it for me to enjoy. And because I'm doing this, I love him more. Or does it distract you? Turn you away? Blind you to his goodness? This is the question we need to ask. Does this kindle my joy in God? Or does this douse it? And if it douses it, remove vexation from your heart. He also says if our challenges are physical pain, he says do what you can to put it away and get rid of it. Obviously, there's some pains we can't. He's, he's not naive to that, but he is saying take care of your body. Get good medical care. Like if there's something, if you're like, oh, my, my arm is snapped and it's just hanging there, Go to the doctor so that they can set it and put you in a cast. Don't just say, I don't know what to do. He's saying, get the care you can. And then he tells us why to do these. The reason for removing vexation and putting away pain is that youth doesn't last forever. He says, youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Did you catch that dawn imagery? Youth and the dawn of life are vanity. In other words, they're fleeting. They're impossible to hold on to. You might want to stay young as long as you can, but guess what? Slipping through your fingers. Because of that, we should rejoice in our youth and in all the years God gives us. So that's our first call. Rejoice. Which brings us to the second call for how we can face the fading with joy. Look at 12.1. He says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So the thought that's going to govern the rest of our passage is that in verse 1. Remember your creator. When he says remember him, he doesn't mean simply don't forget that there is a God. Don't forget that he exists. He's saying remember him in a sense of continually call him to mind. Have it in front of you. Never lose sight of the fact of that he is and remember who he is 
and let that shape how you do everything else. Remember your creator as you're dating. Remember your creator at school. Remember your creator at work. Remember your creator in the hospital. Remember your creator in the grocery store, online, at the bank. Everything you do, remember your creator. What does it mean? It means remember that he is your creator. That means you are made by him and are dependent on him for life and breath and everything. It also means that you live under his rule. He made you, so he therefore is your ruler. He is your king. And we are to live our lives in submission to him and his word. And because he's your creator, he knows what's best for you. He designed you. He knows what will work and what won't. Because he's your creator, you can trust him. And what we celebrate at Christmas is that our creator is not just creator, he's also Emmanuel. This God who made us came to be with us. He came to be with us and die for us. So now he's not just our creator, he's also our savior. Therefore, we are to remember our creator and remember our savior in the days of our youth before the challenges of old age come. Which is what he's alluding to when he says, before the evil days come and the days draw near of which you say, I have no pleasure in them. Where he goes next is he gives us two pictures of growing old. Two pictures. The first picture of old age is in verse 2. And that's of a gathering storm. Look there. He says, Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. So here in his picture, the lights begin to go out. Now there are echoes here of the creation story. And it's almost as though the preacher is showing us how God's good order in creation is reversed. Instead of let there be light and there was light in the midst of the darkness, here it's the sun, the light, the moon, the stars are darkened. God's good order is reversed and it's as though death is the unmaking of a person. The picture is one where clouds are covering the light both by day and by night. And that last part about the clouds returning after the rain. After the rain, we always hope, well, that's when the sun's going to come out. And he says, no. After the rain, more storm clouds come again. He's alluding to the fact that as we grow older, we begin to suffer one trouble after another. With little or no time to recover in between. As one writer said about this verse, he said, There are many lights that are liable to be withdrawn. Besides those of the senses and the faculties, as one by one, old friends are taken, familiar customs change, and long-held hopes now have to be abandoned. These are the picture of lights starting to go out. These are some of the challenges the preacher tells us come with old age. Then in verses 3 to 5, he gives us his second picture. And here the picture is of this once great house crumbling into tragic decay. Listen to this picture. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird 
and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. So, what he does here is paint this this incredible picture. This is this is a word picture describing what happens to our bodies as we grow old. And I want to walk you just briefly through the symbolism here. So you can keep your eyes in the text and I'll kind of give you the key. So when he talks about keepers of the house trembling, the keepers of the house are your hands and your arms. These would have been the strength. These would have been what would have defended you in life. It's why like, the strongest part of you is usually... Why guys spend the most time in the gym on their arms? Because that's what defends you, is what provided, it did the work. But what was formerly the strongest, he said, now tremble. The strong men, these are the legs that are now bent because as we get older, they become unable to hold up the weight of our own body for very long. The grinders ceasing. This is the teeth no longer being able to chew the same way. Those who look through the window are dimmed. These are our eyes that can't see clearly. When the doors of the street are shut, well, think about it. When you shut your door at home, if you live on a busy street, what happens? It gets quieter. There's less sound. So the doors of the street being shut is our ears not hearing as well. The rising up at the sound of a bird is is sleeping lightly. That we're, We're getting up earlier than we may want to, and it's just the little song of a bird that just we're awake again. The daughters of song that can no longer sing, this is our vocal cords getting, getting weakened, so we can't sing the way we used to. They're afraid of what is high. Why are they afraid of what is high? Because they're afraid of falling. They're afraid of the dangers of going out. The almond tree, this one may not jump out to us unless you're into gardening, but when an almond tree blossoms, guess what color they are? They're white. So, What is it referring to? It's as we age, our hair turns white. The almond tree is blossomed. When it comes to the grasshoppers, grasshoppers are among the springiest and most agile creatures. But even this one, instead of just bounding along, now it's dragging itself along. And finally, he refers to this is when the desire or the appetite fails. Then eventually, he says, the mourners will carry our body out for burial as we go to our eternal home. And that death is what he describes in verses 6 and 7. When he says, before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, All is vanity. So here he uses two pictures of death. There's there's four things mentioned there, but they're in two pairs. The first picture is of a lamp with oil held in a golden bowl. So the oil is in the golden bowl, and that bowl is suspended by a silver cord. So it's giving light, and that light is life. The lamp is beautiful and valuable, hence the silver and the gold. But when the cord snaps... The bowl bowl falls and is broken and the light goes out. The other picture is of a pitcher being filled at a well. 
Here, instead of light, life is represented by water. And when the pitcher is shattered, the water's gone. And when the wheel at the well that you would use to crank up and bring up more water, when that's broken, no more water can be drawn. So the water and the life are no more. Our bodies, he, say, he says, are made of dust, and they return to the ground from which we were taken. And the Spirit returns to the God who gave it. In other words, we are unmade. We were made out of dust, and God breathed the breath of life into us, that spirit. But now, he says, the body made out of dust goes back to the dust, and the breath of life goes back to the God who gave it. These are the realities that face all of us. Because of the curse of sin, we will all one day die and be unmade. Now, for some of us, it may happen before we get to experience old age. We're not promised old age. Or we may walk through this process of aging described here. And what the preacher is doing is asking us, before that day comes, how will you live? Friends, growing old is hard. And the Bible minces no words about that. But I don't want you to miss the beauty of this passage. Remember that the Holy Spirit inspired one of the most beautiful poems in Scripture to describe aging and dying with dignity. He didn't need to go into this flowery explanation, all this imagery and symbolism. He could have just said, all you people will get old and you'll die. But he, the fact that he labored to express it this way shows us no, there's a dignity and a beauty attached to aging. Because the other thing I want you to know, friends, is that our Creator takes delight in making the end of things beautiful, even as they fade. Leaves on the tree are most brilliant just before they die. The sun is most glorious when it's at its weakest, just before it sets. And so too, the life of a saint is often most beautiful just before it ends. And when the end does come, our Savior cares. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So whether you're eight or 80 this morning, I want you to remember these promises about growing older. First, if you are in Christ, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Second, God tells us in Isaiah 46, I love this one. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. Friends, that is a precious promise as we grow older. He says, I'm the one that's carried you from the moment you left the womb. Everything you've experienced in life is because I, your creator, have been carrying you. And he says, I'm going to keep carrying you even to old age and to gray hairs. And what is our hope beyond old age and the gray hairs? 
that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be made like his glorious body. Friends, we don't fear old age as Christians because we don't fear death. Death is not the end for followers of Jesus because he died for us, but no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope, Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. And until he does, notice the last words of the preacher here in verse 8. The very last things the preacher says are the same as his first words back in chapter 1. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. He's saying this, all this life is hevel. It's fleeting, going quicker than we can imagine. It's out of our control, like trying to grab smoke. And it's mysterious. We can't know or understand all that God is doing. And because all is vanity, how should we then live our lives under the sun? Rejoice in all the years God gives us and remember our creator and savior so that we can face the fading with joy. Knowing the sunset of life is beautiful. And for the Christian, the sunset is followed by the dawn of never-ending joy. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for these, these precious words, or that you care about what it's like as our bodies grow weaker and frailer, or that you, you give us guidance on how to think and how to live in every season of life, whether we're young or old. God, I pray that all of us here would take these these truths to heart, that we would rejoice in all the years you give us, whether there's many, many, many more to come or this is our last. Would we rejoice in each one? And throughout our lives, as we do everything, would you help us to remember you, our creator and savior, living all of life with you firmly fixed at the center, not just a part of our lives, but the atomic core from which we get all power and direction and guidance from that, that gives us life. So Lord, I praise you for these things and I pray that you would be glorified now as we get to hear about how you have rescued one of your beloved children. Would you be exalted in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.